0: Hello folks and welcome back. This is the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host Simon Ward. Each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. Now this week the grumpy old coaches are reunited. Our last chat was in December 2020 so we have lots to talk about as we seek to bust some of the triathlon secrets that are complete bollocks. Including fad diets, the overemphasis on FTP and VO2 max, the concept of recovery runs, and whether there's any such thing as jump miles on the bike. As you'll be able to tell, I was excited to have Steve and Mark back on the show, so let's get right to it. Right, fellas, welcome back to the Grumpy Old Podcast show. It's nice to see you all again. It's uh, it's been nine months since we. We last together just before Christmas 2020. Who knew that this whole COVID rubbish would sort of stretch on for so long, affecting our lives and our races? Eh? Yeah. What have you been up to this year then? Have you have you actually done any racing, Steve, or have you
1: retired from that now? Yeah. no, well, I mean, I, th- I believe I remember Christmas talking about how I was going to sort of make sure did more local races and support that, and um you know, things like that. Uh, and I have done completely the opposite. I haven't done a thing. So, Excellent. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. How about
0: how about you, Mark? I know you had some races planned. You were supposed to be doing Iron Man Wales last weekend, weren't you? And that was binned
2: Yeah. I did um what have I done this year? Done a, a couple of little races I did Iron Man UK because it's local to us. It's only a few mm. miles away. Mm. So I did Iron Man UK in the uh, torrential downpour that we had. Um that'll be remembered for that year. I, um, I, and then yeah, not, not a lot really, just but I'm just, you know, just getting out of my bike and enjoying training and stuff like that. So
0: yeah. Enjoying the, proce- enjoying the process, eh?
2: Always enjoy the process.
0: Yeah. yeah. I-, I did see a little tweet from you, or-, or maybe it was a Facebook post, saying that you'd um, you'd thought that because it was your 50th year, you might give it a go for... You qualified for Kona this year, didn't you? But Obviously, that was cancelled. But you said you might give it a go next year and actually go.
2: Yeah, I, I think I've qualified for Kona and most of the Ironman races have done, but I've never really had the desire to go. And now, no. now the kids are a little bit... Kids are getting to an age where they might appreciate it. And because I'm 50, I thought, right, I'll go from the 50th. I'm 50 next year. So my mm. plan was to go to Wales this year, which was supposed to be last weekend, wasn't it? And then Wales is the first is a qualifier for next year for Kona 2022, isn't it?
0: Well, so- if, it, if it actually happens in yeah. Kona next year, because now they're talking about the fact that they might move it. Yeah.
2: So, so that, if, that might be it. be it. That might be it. Kona's done. Kona's done. Well, my plan was to qualify at Wales for Kona 2022 and then go for a big holiday and take the girls but it never happened,
0: so we're looking at Skegness now. I've been to Skegness recently. It's good. It's good. Yeah. You could swim I out to those good. swim out to those big
1: windmills in the distance. Better fish and chips than cow, no?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. For sure. For sure, yeah. Coffee's not as good though. Okay, right. Well look we need to get on with this because we're going to get grumpy now. I know we're going to get properly grumpy and I'm sure we're going to upset some people particularly so that, so if there's children listening, we don't upset them. Mark and Steve and I have done some signs that you can't see, but we're going to raise them and laugh at each other. Um, Yeah. They're good ones, Steve. So the, the title of the podcast is uh, myths of triathlon or secrets of triathlon that are absolute bollocks. So we had a long list longer than Steve's arms and Steve's arms are quite long. Um, so we've come up with a few. Uh, these are in by no means in order of uh, importance or bollocksness. Um, they're just the ones that we pulled out. So the the first one I've got uh, extreme diets to help you go faster. So at the moment, maybe in the last twelve months, I've noticed there's been a, a real drive. That, you know, I, I got on the low carb, high fat um, train uh, via Dan Plouz, and I've sort of. Um, adjusted that slightly to lower carb and thinking about the carbs I eat, but there's a lot of people that are taking it further and going on to keto, which is very, very low carb. And I just think that these two are like chalk and cheese, endurance training, triathlon and keto. Are, you know, th- there's, there's one or two people for whom it works. I just don't see how it can work for most people. Thoughts?
1: One of you. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, the, 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 yeah, I, I mean, I agree. That, that The issue is that the people, as in with, with many things these days, especially if you're a company, right. this is the only way to do it. This is the best way to do it. Oh, no, this is the only way to do it. This is the best way to do it. Diet's come into that. So, yes, keto or, or low-fat or you know high-fat, low-carbs, it may well work for some people. That's fine. Get on with it um high carbs may work for some people that's fine get on with it most people are going to be somewhere in the middle a decent balance cut out the crappy you know as much as you can i'm on a you know a bad advert for that to be honest but you know yeah. cut out sugar cut out the processed foods Is probably the one that is going to work best for most people um and 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 uh, I think it's wrong for people to push a certain diet as, mm. as the only. Yes, you can you can find studies that back up low fat, but you can find plenty of studies that back up high carbs as well. So you know, it's horses it for courses. It, it does it does get a bit polarized,
0: doesn't it? Unfortunately, it's like it's like discussing religion and politics. It, it feels like you've either got to be in one camp or the other, and. Opposite camps aren't able to see the benefits of the other side, and like you say, any research will tell you that you've got outliers at both ends, and then you've got the bell curve where most people get on okay with a particular um, with a particular philosophy. Mark, what what are you, what are your thoughts on um, nutrition for triathletes?
2: Um, well, I mean, I think for, for me, you know, we live in this world of marginal gains now, don't we? And uh, people love the term marginal gains because it means they can avoid doing the maximal stuff. That we've mm-hmm. talked about in the past so you know if i buy a new set of wheels i don't have to train um if i change my diet then i don't have to train it's those kind of things and that's for me diet is part of that so i know people will say oh you can't outrun a bad diet i know some amazing runners who eat absolutely dreadful so in, in some cases you can't run a bad diet so for, for me nutrition is it's important as long as you keep it to the basics but i also think it just gives people the silver bullet and we live in i know i mean you look at the kind of whole diet industry in this country. It's a, you know it's it's extreme, isn't it? We like to focus on these things. And what's next is it the paleo diet, or do I go on the uh, high fat low carb diet, or do I? I mean ketosis and all these kind of people. You know, and, and it's like it's another fad and it's another trend and it's another silver bullet. If I do this, it'll move me from a 17 hour iron man to a 10 hour iron man. And actually, it won't. You know, the biggest thing, 90 percent of your gain is going to come from the training plan. And then 10% of your gains are going to come from everything else, all the marginal stuff. And one of those things is probably nutrition. So yeah, I, I mean, was- on, on, in, in in counter to that, I
0: would say, you know, if we talk about the people that are doing triathlon or any endurance events, they're human beings first. And if you're thinking about good health, then re- like Steve said, reducing processed foods, getting rid of refined sugars so rather than going on the keto diet, I mean, we all like to have a cake when we have the coffee stop. But if you rather than going on the keto diet, just cut out some of those to start with. In fact, yeah. have a have a bacon and egg sandwich would probably be more healthy than having a big piece of cheesecake. But um, you you talk about bookmark and the and the you know the diet industry. The, the simplest book that would never get bought is eat real food, right? Cook it yourself. Do that nine times out, out of ten. And on the 10th time, eat what you fancy. That's probably going to get you to a healthy life. Your bloods are going to be good. Your cholesterols are going to be good. Your your heart health is going to be good. And your triathlon training is going to be good.
2: Yeah. but no. if you go go to any high street and just stop someone in the high streets, nine out of 10 people will know what good good eating is. And I know people are always looking for advice and I need a nutritionist or I need to buy these books or I need to do this, need to do that. But everybody knows... What you know that fruit and veg are good for you, they know that sugar is bad for you. You know, people, it's it's just common sense, just eat 80% healthy. And if you want to treat every now and again, I think think with triathletes, again, if if the triathletes, we you know, I I suppose in the past, I've always called them nerves, but they are that people become very absorbed by triathlon. Mm. You know, and and when I was younger, I went through that phase where everything is about triathlon, your whole life starts to revolve around it almost like an obsessive uh, you know kind of nature it can get that way so everything is about triathlon you you walk to the shops in, in compression calf guards do you know what i mean that kind of thing and um, and i think that people become so obsessed with it they want to embrace everything so not only have i got to like you know work on my overall position and my training and analyze my data and i've got to track my sleep and i've got to track everything and now i've got to weigh my food and i've got to measure my macros yeah we'll come back to sleep in a second measure my macros and it's all about this everything's got to be perfect you know and I think the problem is you kind of you start to look you're not taking into account this kind of psychosocial factors as well so you know triathletes have families and they eat with the families so you know what (laughs) you can't probably cook two or three different meals at mealtimes and also just enjoying what you're eating as well and being able to have a treat you go on social media the best one for me an example of this gives you an example of how many triathletes have got minor eating disorders. Every time they go out for a bike ride and they stop and have a piece of cake in a the cafe, they have to take a picture of it. They don't need to post it on there to go, look, I ate a piece of cake. Look, it's an actual piece of cake. You know, nom nom, that kind of thing they normally say afterwards. And I, I think just to be able to relax and enjoy eating and having a drink if you want to as well, because, you know, from my experience, the people who are happy are usually the ones that train more consistently because, you know, being happy and content is a big part of being able to train.
0: Do you, do you know, um, in the triathlon world, Steve and I know a guy called Kez Aleknavicius and um we met Kez last week. Kez has been doing triathlon longer than me and Steve and he's- He's, he's so relaxed about it. And that's probably why he's been doing it so long. He used to ride his bike to work and back. That was his training, was commuting, go out with his mates on a weekend. You know, he's done more Ironmans than probably we've all done to get put together. Yeah. And uh, he's still at it in his 60s now and he's retired and he's happier than ever.
2: Yeah, yeah. But happiness is a big part of it, isn't it? People who are happy during the training program um, are more likely to to, uh, to be consistent with the training. They want They're motivated, they want to do it and i think that if you start getting drawn into all these different diets and you know someone goes and does a hundred mile training ride and they come back and it's been raining and they're tired and then they get to sit to the table and realize that they can only have hamster food because that's what it says on the training plan you know i mean if you want a chippy tea and a beer after going out doing a hundred mile ride and it yeah. makes you feel happy then yeah. do it because you need to feel happy just in life in general and also it's a reward for the training and if you're happy and you wake up happy the next morning you- Going to be motivated to go and train again. So there's got to be a balance there. I think. I think yeah. A related point is is all the is the perceived
1: need to stuff gels and energy drinks down your face after 30 minutes spinning on the turbo, yeah. or, or in the gym as well. Um, again, you know, that, as Mark said, that that's basically come from the the industry. You know, the billion billion dollars yeah. of of um, sports nutrition industry, which is. Sort of con people into believing that the hydration is going to kill them after an hour of anything. Yeah. Um, and that the only way to get through any sort of workout is 20 minute gels or cholly gels every 20 minutes.
0: Yes. Um, you, Um, I mean, we'll all have been out on the group ride, like you say, where somebody's. You know, you stop for a a wee stop for somebody after thirty minutes, and the first person to crack open an energy bar and munch it while they're there—you think they maybe they have not eaten since the previous night. But also, the people who turn up to swim sessions with a couple of gels and um, uh, a bottle full of energy drink for an hour swim session.
2: Mm, Yeah, Um, I mean, do you know what? It's funny because because obviously I have a running shop. We stock energy products. What I've noticed—I remember when we very first created energy gels and we were kind of dealing with them. And what it was for an energy gel was if you were in a race or out for a run and you're bonked completely and had low blood sugar, mm-hmm. you could take something that would be a hit to get your blood sugar back up. Mm-hmm. And that was how it was marketed and that was what it was for. But obviously, you wouldn't sell enough off that. So then there was a shift. We noticed it very, very clearly. There was a shift from, well, you need to take three of these every hour now. You know, so that it wasn't when you're in difficulty, take one. It was now, oh, no, you need to take three an hour you need to be taking 60 to 80 grams every hour because if you don't and here was a kicker because if you don't the quality of your workout will be compromised the quality of your workout will be compromised so it's you know that just that whole terminology and we got onto this energy gels topic now but that whole terminology how it changed that your, your session will be compromised the quality will be compromised if you don't take six, uh, 60 grams every hour and you probably won't make it for an hour's exercise anyway if you don't take three gels and a bottle of energy drink. <laughs> you'll,
0: uh, you'll, you'll train with some. Uh, you probably know the same guys that I do from Yorkshire. Um, Mark, that are the, the fell runners, the, um, the Ian Holmeses, and Andy Peace. This world and Gary Devine, who's just written a book. Actually, there was somebody's writing about that in the. Uh, yeah. I think yeah. it was in the Daily Telegraph the other day, saying that if if it was a if it was a local race, they'd go out and have four or five pints, and then have a couple of pints of cider, and then they'd turn up the next morning still with a bit of a hangover and race and. Um, you know, Gary Devine raced for Great Britain uh, as a fell runner, and he was pretty successful. He, he was also a punk rocker, so he'd go to a he go to a concert the night before. He'd turn up with his pink Mohican, and uh, that was how he was noticeable. But I've I've spent a bit of time skiing with some of these fell runners, and their approach to life and having fun is completely different to triathletes. They, they'll they'll go to a fell race and they'll cycle over there on their cross bikes, mm. and the um they'll arrange to meet at a pub and they'll probably have a pint beforehand, and, then they'll do the race and then they'll have a couple of pints and then they'll cycle home with lights on in the dark. And that's good fun for them. If when they're doing their own little things in the winter, they, they meet up at a pub at the bottom of a fell and that's, and that's the meeting point and the finishing point, And then they'll have a few pints. Yeah. Um, yeah. And beer always comes together with running for them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But that's, but that you know, sociologists would tell you that's cultures as well, isn't it?
0: It is, but it but it doesn't. But and I, and I mean, your sports scientists would say, well, maybe they'd perform better if they weren't doing that, if they weren't if they weren't drinking the night before. But but for them, that that that's also that. Um, it's the culture, but it's also the sense of belonging to a group, isn't it? And the sense of belonging is a huge part of of having yeah. fun and enjoying yeah. life.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, is yeah, yeah, they might on on any given race perform better, but mm-hmm. would they be doing it for 20, 30, 40 years?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah. and you're absolutely right because Ian Holmes is still running at a pretty high level now, isn't he? And he's in his 50s um, and some of his other mates are still running and they're in their 60s and they're still doing it because they love it and they're still fit guys.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's some of the almost still very protect uh, with the fell running culture, isn't it? That kind of no frills and, you know, go out for the beers afterwards and no gadgets. I mean, I'm, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm pretty much sure still in England you're not allowed to use GPS devices for navigation in fell races. mm they well, get, you
0: know, yeah. they, I'm sure they laugh at the triathletes when they're talking. It to, I mean, how many people would you see at a FL race wearing uh, calf guards or compression socks?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, mm. well, talking of fads, um, something, and I, I do believe there's value in this, but what's become much more popular, I think it was Michael Mosley who did it on a health program for the BBC about um, Tabata training. The four minutes of super high intensity interval, eight 20 second intervals with a 10 second rest at maximal effort for four minutes. That's all you need to do to lose weight and keep fit. And Tabata training was initially developed by a scientist, a sports scientist called Tabata for Japanese speed skaters as a training method. Wouldn't have been the only training method, but it would have been one of them and it's gained popularity. And now we have this whole industry uh, that's built up about high intensity training and now it seems, I think you brought this up, Mark, that there's a trend towards people thinking that you only need to do high intensity training and in small amounts if you push for time, and that will be enough. So let's start ranting about something else. <laughs> I thought tabata was a bread. What's Tabata? Called? Tabata. <laughs> tabata. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to have you've got to have eight rolls every twenty one every twenty seconds, four minutes. <laughs> Go on. One of you,
1: you both, you both one sports of, scientists. So you tell want me, to put Steve, on this one. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's a bit of a there's been a misunderstanding about the high intense, the high intensity training value for endurance athletes. If you look at uh, any any, it should be part of a decent endurance athlete's program, Um but the timing. As in, how much you do and when you do it is is the critical thing. That you don't do it all the time, and the amount that you should do or need to do is is relatively tiny. Mm-hmm. the 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 issue arises, I think, because it is the type of training that gives you the quickest results.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So whether you're a you know if you're even if you're a, if you're a well trained endurance athlete. It, it will give you quick results. You'll you'll see some quick improvements, and if you're a sort of an otherwise sedentary person, it probably is the the one that you know it burns the most calories, um, trims your waistline or whatever. So you, you see, you'll certainly see, um, you know, a lot of a lot of research is around otherwise sedentary people, which which kind of, which type of training gives the best results, and people leap, and it is high intensity, you know, very high. Intensity, short volume, training, um, but these 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 research uh, projects are all very short term. They're over, you know, a few mm. weeks or, or or a couple of months. And yes, you do see fantastic improvements, and you see certainly quicker than than control subjects. Certainly quicker, bigger improvements than you know or, you know steady state or easy or whatever control subjects. And um, and it's misleading because. Yes, you get short-term results, and the short-term results are, you know, bigger than any other type of training, but they don't last. You know, they 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 don't last, and also they're they're riskier. Mm -hmm. Um, so for 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 a you know I say a proper athlete, somebody who's who's serious about their performance in endurance, they need to be built on a, a really good, solid aerobic steady state base and if you, you're bigger that base the, the bigger the effects you will get from high intensity training um and the bigger that base the less risky that will be in terms of injury and, and overdoing it um mm-hmm. but the, the sort of the fallacy is oh well i'll get the quickest i'll get the quickest results from this type of training i'll do more of it uh, and i'll do it over longer periods through the year the season whatever um mm-hmm. And it eventually, or, you know, it's the type of training that will quickly lead to burnout, injury, uh, whatever. Um, if, if too much is done.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I've talked to Stephen Seiler and Paul Larson a couple of times each on, on this podcast. And that's where I see the value of it. And, and, you know, they both feel that you can do that year round. However, it's like you said, Steve, absolutely in small amounts. It, you know, people talk about 80-20. That Steelers research about 80-20 was 20% of your sessions. So if you've got two 10 sessions a week, two of them maybe have got high intensity. And within that, you're probably doing a, dura, a total duration within each session of max, max up to 15 minutes for most people would, would get good returns. So that's 30 minutes in a week. Yeah. If, you, if you're training for 10 hours a week, that's 5% of your training. That's, mm. that's not a lot, no, really. And, not, the, and then it. they say, in order to get to those sessions in good shape, the rest of that training has got to be easy to moderate, which is in zone one and two, which, which to be quite honest, bores the pants off most people. So they push on a bit harder so you end up in that black hole, which is probably something else we should talk about, Mark, is the overvaluation of what threshold work does for you.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I'm just going to say about, you say it bores the pants off you, that doing that longer orbit work. I'm just, well, first of all, I'm just coming back by saying, in terms of, you know, going back to this original question of the no pain, no gain, and high intensity interval stuff, eh, what Steve, Steve said kind of hit the nail on the head. So, I absolutely, fully agree with Steve that, that um, people want the short term gain, and the, the best way to get short term gain is to do high intensity interval training. But it's been known, you know, go back 20, 30, 40 years, and people have always said after six to 10 weeks of intervals, you hit a plateau, mm-hmm. and then you start to go downhill quite often. So that's the optimal time to start doing intervals six to ten weeks before an event. That was the old school advice, wasn't it? But people want that instant gain. They don't want to look at the long term. So as Steve said, the timing of how much you do and when you do it, it, it is the critical bit. But um, what I would say is, um, uh, our well, two points, sorry. First point, just to cover your point about the, the boring stuff, that people don't want to do the long, steady, boring stuff. I don't find that boring at all. I love riding my bike. So the best, the best time where I can spend my time is six hours going out all day or riding the bike, or two to three hours going out running on the trails or on the fells. Mm-hmm. So I am not bored with that at all. And if people are bored with that, they're probably doing it wrong and need to engage a little bit with nature yeah. and the environment and whatever else it may be. But learn to enjoy riding your bike. What is better than going out for a day out on your bike?
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, yeah I mean, no.
2: I hate I hate the hard stuff more than that stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I think it's also worth throwing in, and, and I think you know we've talked with this kind of burnout of doing too much high intensity stuff cause burnout, and I think it's probably a psychosocial a psycho psychobiological thing because I think there's probably mentally as much burnout as much as there's physical burnout but I, I do think it's worth throwing in as well, and I've just just thought of this one with our you know terminologies and stuff and things which we're saying is potentially a bit bullshit is um I do think that the trend of reverse periodization. Huh. Is more likely to cause this effect because that what people when people use the term we're using reverse periodization and it's not well reverse periodization doesn't exist from a start does it you know but what what they really mean is we're reversing the pyramid so that classic pyramid of do a big aerobic base and then as the year progresses closer to your event you get towards the peak of the pyramid and add some high intensity stuff. When people say reverse periodization, what they, what they think, that, what they're actually saying is we're reversing the pyramid. So we'll start with the short, hard stuff and then finish with the long, easy stuff rather than starting with the long, easy stuff and finishing with the short, hard stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what they mean, They mean reverse, reverse pyramid rather than reverse periodization. But actually what, what I tend to see is when people follow that reverse periodization is they just do intervals as hard as they can. For slightly increasing in length over a six month period.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, if it was true reverse periodization or reverse pyramid, they'd do six to 10 weeks of really high intensity intervals and then they spend the next three or four months doing zone one aerobic base work. And that's not what happens when people do reverse periodization. So, I think that trend has a lot to answer for. And, you know, that's why people don't follow 80 20.
0: I uh, I mean if we really wanted to be pedantic here we could even take issue with the whole periodization thing couldn't we mm. um you know whether it has any validity within triathlon when you've got three sports where you develop at different Points where people at different stages of development within their triathlon career, if you call it that. I mean, periodization was designed by Eastern European strength trainers for athletes within specific sports where those coaches had total control over the lifestyles of those people and they could program it in and they knew sessions would get done. They knew the recovery would get done and the athletes were... um, Adhering to the program because that was all they had no choice. It's not the same in the Western world where you've got so many distractions and people are missing blocks of work and work either get dragged here, there, and everywhere. And and you find these days that we certainly with the elite athletes, that they're following what's called, you know, that block periodization where they're doing stuff in small blocks of training. Um, so they don't they don't have that periodization, reverse periodization or whatever. Um, and but too much emphasis is put on it. And I, I I do like to refer back to Silas. Uh, it, hierarchy of needs a bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs when he says look these three things at the bottom tend to get the biggest bang for the buck one if you've got 10 hours a week just train frequently and just fill it with as much volume don't worry just do what you said Mark go out on your bike and enjoy it go running and enjoy it just go swimming don't worry about your lap times don't worry about your drills just swim and then if you've got a bit more time just add when you feel good have a few intervals on the day we feel good not planned just smash a few hills if you're short hills. Do do a few strides on the on the run track, and then if you really want to go the next step, add maybe one structured interval session a week. If you followed those first three steps, the majority of recreational athletes who are likely to be listening to this podcast, and including the three of us, would probably do really really well for a long duration of time. You know, many years if we followed a structure like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that that rever- I say that reverse periodization for me has killed a lot of it for people. And I know what we talked about when people come into triathlon, there are those kind of obsessive type A people who just love everything about triathlon. And I think that, you know, those people will probably accept it a little bit because, you know, they might burn out after a couple of years, but in the short term, they love it and they embrace it. But yeah, just, just no, no riding, no running, no aerobic base work at all. It's just drill it from the off. People who've got no aerobic conditioning, doing high-intensity intervals from week one, Hmm. progressing to slightly longer intervals, to slightly longer intervals, to slightly longer intervals. So I, I think you've got to be very careful with that reverse periodization thing.
0: So Dan Plews once told me that you, you need mitochondria are the function, of, the function of life and the function of endurance um, sport. And it's that long, easy stuff, the many hours that builds up mitochondria. And then when you've got lots of mitochondria, you can, can polish... And Yeah, and capillaries and all of that oxygen transport system. Then you can make it more efficient by doing the intervals. But if you've only got a small amount of that, if you keep making it more efficient, eventually that's when you reach a full stop. So that's when your intervals stop working and you plateau. Yeah. So we need zone two and zone one stuff and riding your bike all day is brilliant. But to come on to another one of our hair bristling uh, phrases, junk miles. A lot of people would say, well, if you're riding your bike and you're not going hard, it's just junk miles, Steve. You brought this one up, didn't you? Junk miles. Have your yeah, say.
1: I, I would I, I would argue that there isn't such a thing as junk miles on the bike because no riding really can can be. I mean, if it's if you if you assume something's junk, it's it's waste of time. Uh-huh. And I, I don't think there can be on a bike. Maybe not running, but on a bike, I don't think any time on the bike is is can be wasted you know it like Mike, you know marks mentioned an easy bimble for 40 50 60 minutes i mean that a it's it's the best recovery in triathlon uh-huh. um, certainly better than running which we'll come on to. Ah. but you know <laughs> you can get outside you know you can you can you can um, ride outside on a well i was going to say a sunny day or any to- any day really just <laughs> just get out and enjoy uh, the environment Um, So, you know, mentally, mentally refreshing as much as physically. Um, And, you know, again, as we've just sort of touched on, anything harder than that is going to be, is going to be building or at least maintaining your aerobic base. You know, so it might be perceived as junk intensity, but um, it, it isn't. It's doing the job.
2: Yeah.
1: I've, I've had lots of
0: conversations with athletes over the past who said they used to, they rode to work 20 minutes each way most days and yeah. th- they didn't have a car. So they rode everywhere, but it was just commuting and just, you know, obviously you're in your work clothes. So you don't want to get sweaty. And then anecdotally saying, but those were the best cycling years of my triathlon life. Mm. Yeah? yeah. So yeah. if those are junk miles, then where, where does that, where do those best performances come from?
2: Yeah. 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 I mean, <laughs> you, know, you, you can, it, you, sorry, Mark, go on. I was going to say, we, you know, we're talking about this 80 20 thing, and we're an 80 20, like the same reality for a lot of people. The intensity is probably no more than five, absolute most 10% of the training plan. Mm. Um, and if we agree that that works, um, the issue we've got is this long standing problem where people perceive that 5% to be the important bit, mm-hmm. and the other 95% to not be the important bit, you know, and, and that's the critical bit. So if, if you look at your week and everybody's got, lots of easy hours and there's some very high intensity bits mixed in there they'll focus on the high intensity bits and think well that's the critical stuff that's the stuff that makes me better and almost dismiss the other stuff so then that's led to people dropping the other stuff because i'll just focus on the stuff that's critical Mm, yeah and then i'll turn it junk miles because that makes it a lot easier to miss it if i call it junk miles because that now backs up and supports why i'm not going to do it because it's just junk and just got to this point where you know so if that's if, if easy stuff is junk miles, then the whole eighty twenty concept is is nonsense. You know, it doesn't work. And yet all the world's best athletes follow 80 twenty.
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, you mentioned there, Steve, about uh junk being a waste of time. And I, I agree with you um, that no amount of cycling is a waste of time, I don't think. You know, if you no. if you cycled to work and back and you did 20 minutes, um Morning and evening. That's forty minutes a day. That's two hundred minutes a week. That's three and a half hours of riding. Plus, maybe you could use those easy miles going home as a warm up for a turbo session or a warm up for a run. Um, you could fit in a long ride at the weekend. Um, I, I do. I think though that when when people turn at term talk about junk training, I, I'd like to think that that's training where you haven't got any clue what you're doing. You start off thinking I'll do this, and then you do that, and actually. You don't have a purpose for doing that training, but if that if that purpose of that ride is just to help you recover from the hard session yesterday, so you get ready for the hard session tomorrow, then that isn't junk at all. It's a very useful session mm. to fit in between two. If it's uh, a, a day when you want to focus on one particular thing, then then that's good. But for me, junk junk stuff is when it when it doesn't contribute anything to your towards your goals.
2: Mm. Yeah. You could have a bad day at work and go home and think, do you know what? I'm just going to go out for a 30 minute run on the trails just to clear my head. Mm. That's not junk. It's got a purpose to it. You've done it. Feel better the next day. Feel better for doing it. Feel better the next day. it will be junk if you went out and, um, you know, decided to to persist with your plan and your plan says something like three by a mile at effort and You go out and drill yourself into the floor and hate it, you know, (laughs) so yeah. Watch your classes, junk miles, you know. So uh, 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 anything really that's, done with some kind of reason whether it's just to chill out or whether it's to hit some targets um, then I, I don't think anything's jump really yeah.
1: And the, the other the other the other thing is you know the the idea of um what the pros call supless just that that smoothness of pedaling yeah i mean in any riding uh, you which you get from riding a lot there's no other way of doing it um so you you commute or so your easy rides you're going to be working on that. Mm. I,
0: I've I've tried to find out when I've talked to guys like you. You know the the people with the science background. What what's the minimum amount of of something that you need to do for it to to have some value for your fitness? And I think there seems to be some consensus around 20 minutes. That if you can if, if you're doing something for 20 minutes, an easy run. I know Dave Scott says if he if he can't do anything, he likes to get in at least 20 minutes. Dan Plu said around the same. You know. 20 minutes to get there because that's about the time roughly that the aerobic system takes to warm up as well isn't it so uh, and and also if you're doing two sessions a day then there's this idea of cellular signaling you get that they switch on again and get developed so um you know if you couldn't do a 40 minute run but you could split that run into 220 minutes then you've still got the same volume in the day maybe the quality of those two runs are better because you had a little bit of recovery in between
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: so um, Steve, you touched on something else you said we should bring up, which was recovery runs. <laughs> <sighs> ah, go on, S- start me off, mate. Go on, get get my goat going.
1: Yeah, no such thing. They are, just coin a phrase. <laughs> your, your camera's off now, Steve. <laughs> yeah, we can't see your camera. Would it be ah, this? Well, the... Um yeah, there you go. <laughs> no, I mean the the thing with with any any running is it, it that it it breaks you down, you know, and it, and it requires recovery from. Um, so the idea of the idea of going for a run as recovery, uh, it just doesn't make sense, especially when you've got biking and swimming um, that would do a much better job or walking. Or walking, yeah, because you know the completely different impact, um, or or no impact really from 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 walking, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, well, whereas the impact from running will always cause damage.
0: And if you keep jogging, you've got really good technique, and you weigh fifty kilos. Maybe maybe a forty-minute run doesn't impact have much impact on you. But that doesn't. Most triathletes don't fall into either of those categories, do they? Well,
1: no, no none do. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um but you know, I would argue even for him that you know impact impact causes damage. It kills blood cells, um, causes causes stress and needs recovery from. So,
0: mm. yeah, I I've never believed in the value of uh, the phrase recovery run of you, Mark.
2: No, not really. I suppose, it's just, and again, it's just terminology, isn't it? If someone runs one hundred and twenty miles a week, and they just and they sell, I'm just having an. A, you know, Tuesday is a hard day at the track or something, and Wednesday is an easy day or a recovery day. And they jog very slowly for 45 minutes, and they can probably handle that. And again, it's just terminology, isn't it? So, I'm going to do a rec- rather than doing a track session today because I'm tired, I'm going to do a recovery run instead. Mm. And then it's an easy 45 minute run, then it depends how you use your terminology. But like I say, ultimately, if you're a triathlete, if you've done a, a race on Sunday and on Monday your legs are really sore, you could probably still go to the pool and do an okay aerobic swim set, couldn't you? Mm. But to go out and go, right, I'm going to run, run 30 minutes to an hour easy today, there's probably no point really because it's just delaying the uh, delaying recovery when you could spend your time a lot better sat on the bike or in the pool.
0: Yeah, I, I, had, I had something I was going to add to that. Oh, yeah, I was reading, reading Kipchoge's uh, training program for his um, lead up to Berlin when he broke the world record. And he, he starts off his runs running at seven minutes per kilometre right this mm-hmm. is the world record holder who runs around 3 minutes per kilometer for his marathons right and yet how many people do i hear say i can't run at 7 minutes per kilometer it's too slow well hold on a minute Kip jogi can run at it why can't you
1: yeah 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 i think well, i think confusing there is between sort of an aerobic development run mm-hmm. which can be or should be low speed
2: yeah, yeah. and then, well, and then
1: what I was saying about you know the p- people who are running once or twice every day, going out for a forty-five minute, what they might call a recovery run,
0: yeah,
1: they're actually recovering, um, it's more of an air sort of just a, a, an aerobic maintenance run. No, no, no. You're right. I'm not arguing with you. I'm just
0: saying it's this semantics thing about what what you know. People saying they can't run slow when it's possible for the fastest people well, to run yeah, that, yeah. that speed. Yeah. But um, well, we talk, terminology. Mark, you you talk about the way in which we define stuff. I, I often have a uh, um, trouble understanding. When people talk about doing speed work and then they're doing four or five minute intervals just doing some speed work because we, we've had this discussion, haven't we? That speed works like stuff up to 20 seconds, maximal effort or max maximal cadence, if you like. But terminology yeah. also gets in the way when we start talking about the importance of things like FTP and VO2 max when we're determining or trying to predict our race performance. And there seems to be, and I'm sure that probably as much as I like Swift and train and road. Um, I'm sure that these things have also got some blame attached to them for this of making FTP out and, and maybe those watches that you're wearing and making FTP out and VO2 max to be hugely important for endurance yeah. athletes in extreme endurance events. And I think we all agree that it's probably not.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is important, but it, but the problem is it influences people in lots of different ways. But just before that, I'm just going to just go back one second. You know, you were talking about people, uh giving doing seven minutes per kilometre. Hmm. I do have got experience of coaching people who are, will say um, six minutes per kilometre pace is just way too slow. They cannot possibly run that slow, um, which is interesting because they can manage to walk three quarters of the Ironman marathon though. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> well, seven, s- six minutes per kilometre is a yeah. 420, a 420 what, what? Ironman marathon. And that's, that's about the average pace for an Ironman marathon, isn't it?
2: People say, what, what, what should my Ironman marathon pace be? Well, you know, if you can run the whole thing, you're, you're doing well. If you can not walk it, you're doing well. So, but yet people will want to think if they're not running four minutes per kilometer that they're wasting time, mm. and then they come to an Ironman marathon and can't run it, can't run at all, and have to walk it. So, so that's my point for that. But anyway, going back to the way in terms of terminology, and um, yeah, terminology is in FTPs and VO two. So I noticed a couple of things. Well, first of all, that the FTP thing is in, in cycling is and triathlon is really really big at the moment. So we seem to be. Asking people, we are, we're, we're, we're basically grading people on their ability based mm-hmm. on what's your FTP and not on what their race results are. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, I think, a really dangerous thing to do, is to be worried about your FTP. The only thing that matters is how fast you go, what your time is on race day. That's all that matters, not FTP. And and because if you start becoming obsessed with FTP, and FTP in itself is a FTP is your average power for an hour, isn't it? But no one ever does an hour test.
0: Well, Steven it, Seiler always says try and do an hour, and most yeah. people turn their nose up at it.
2: So they do a 20-minute test because it's too hard to do an hour. So 20-minute test is easier. So and then that which predicts what they can do for an hour. Quite how that works out, I don't Oh, know.
0: hold on. No, because we have to argue about whether you adjust that figure by seven percent or five percent, then because obviously five percent gives you a higher estimated FTP, so that's better, isn't
1: it?
2: <laughs> so basically it, it works out that I can just gear all my training towards what I can push for 20 minutes. And by magic, that that then gives me a better score for an hour. Or if you don't want to do the 20-minute test, because that's too hard, you can do a ramp test instead. Mm-hmm. And the ramp test probably overpredicts even more than the 20-minute test.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The problem is, because we're, we're now focusing on this as the gold standard, so what's your FTP is how we're grading people in cycling. And that's right up to Ironman distance, where FTP plays a part, but aerobic endurance is always going to be king in a long-distance event, especially you're going to run a marathon after it as well. So we're grading people by FTP. So naturally what will happen is all the training shifts to all become about the FTP. So all I need to do is push a high power for 20 minutes and that will give me that highest score. So they start training based around that and just losing sight of the big picture completely, which is yeah. you've got to ride 112 miles in an Ironman event. I mean, I'm, I'm talking specifically about longer distance events here, but you've got to ride 120 mile, 112 miles, and then run a marathon off the back of it. So the the absolute focus on FTP, the obsession with FTP, and I, I again, think this is why a lot of people do reverse periodization because reverse periodization feeds into this as well. And then what I've noticed – I'm going to go on here. I can't – you need to stop me (laughs) and cut me off or something. But then what I've noticed more of is – so in the 80s, 90s, VO2 max was like the gold standard. And whatever your VO2 – cross-country skiers are the fittest people in the world because they've got the highest VO2 max – Whatever that figure shows, that is how fit you are. And then we went through a phase of realising that was bollocks. And now it's coming back. The VO2 max is making a resurgence. And what I see on social media is people posting pictures of the watches saying, well, my VO2 is 45, so clearly my fitness, is my training is working. The only thing that really matters is race performances. And VO2 on watches and FTP is pushing people down a certain path and they're getting distracted by that rather than the things they need to do to perform better in what are, in essence, aerobic endurance events. I'm stopping. I'm, stopping. I'm gonna, I'm I'm gonna,
0: gonna, gonna stop, stop you there, Mark. Let I'm your blood stop. pressure, let your blood pressure drop a bit, Steve. Over to what? you for a few over over to you for a few
1: seconds, Steve. <laughs> does he need to yeah, yeah, another, he thing, another thing? Another <laughs> thing. No, I uh, I uh, yes, I'll tell you what is 100 percent bollocks is anything your watch tells you. Well my no, hold on mine says ten past three, I know that's but right. On, about your about your VO2 max or <laughs> your current level of fitness or whatever. Um yeah, yeah sort of basically it's somebody's stuck a finger in the air, haven't they? Um, do you yeah. think
0: though, Steve, that if if you on shorter events and maybe single sport events it might have more relevance the fastest athletes tend to be the ones with the highest vo2 max or ftp however if we turn it around the people with the highest ftp are not necessarily going to be the fastest athletes and the longer the race goes on or the more disciplines you put in there the less relevance that actually has
1: yeah it's you know the correlation drifts the, 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 the longer the event um for, for vo2 max but uh, you know what? What is in what is important is the percentage of that VO two max you can maintain, and that comes from efficiency and basic endurance. And, and your efficiency comes from basic endurance as well, really. So, yeah, it, it's it's what's the what's the phrase? Necessary but not sufficient. Mm. Well,
0: back back to those long slow miles we talked about efficiency. Endurance building the mitochondria and and that sub maximal speed. I mean, was it Derek Clayton that held the world marathon record? But he he didn't have the highest VO two yeah, max, did he? Yeah. But but he was able to operate at a, quite a high percentage of that yeah. because he had a good underpinning aerobic threshold.
1: He, he's the classic case in in the sort of physiology textbooks of of why uh, of this argument really why why a high, the higher the VO two max isn't necessarily the better. Mm. He's was relatively low, I think from memory, about high sixties, which which for an elite marathon runner is pretty low, but he could operate a a huge percentage of that. Um, I think also Paula Radcliffe was similar. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, you saw, I think if you see the, there is some data that Andy Jones did about her running economy over several years. I think about seven years where her marathon times were improving her vo2 max was static but her economy that's a, that's her ability to process Well, you sports scientists can define economy but her economy over the, that time was better so she could sustain a submaximal speed for much longer yeah. and and yeah. Um, and therefore go 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 she she built the ability to not slow down later on in the race
2: yeah, yeah. the thing with vo2 max and economy as well economy is just how much oxygen you using at any given speed or any given power output or any given workload Mm. So if you uh, give you an example of this, if you could have someone who's got a VO2 max of 65, and that's 65 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram body weight per minute. Okay. When they're at their maximum. So that person might be running at 10 minute miles and that person might require 65 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram per minute to run at nine minute miles. So they hit a VO2, their VO2 max when they're running at nine minute mile pace, mm. you could have someone else who's got only got a VO2 of 50 so less than 65, and you would think, well, that person's less fixed. They've got a lower VO2. But that person could be running at six-minute miles and still only be using 40 mils of oxygen per kilogram. Right. You know, so so it's, it's, it's not how big your ceiling is. It's, it's really how much oxygen you use for any given running speed. So an articulated lorry might have a 12-litre engine in, and your car might have two litres in. But the articulated lorry is not going to go six times faster than the car because it needs a massive amount of energy to go quite slow. you know. So, so it's not just VO2 max. It's how much oxygen you personally need to run at any speed.
0: Right. I've got a question for you then. In order to be more efficient as a runner, because that's, that's the thing where biomechanics are so much more important now, because it's about your landing, your takeoff, and the way you hold your body and your core strength, and we're using more muscles to support ourselves than we are on a bike. Um, surely I need to spend my time doing lots of running drills and improving my running technique and maybe I should start running on my forefoot rather than heel striking because I've heard that actually that's more effective. So.
2: can Steve, answer this one first because I need a minute. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm, here. I'm steaming. I just need, to, I just need a minute. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I think that, you know, I... Certainly think there is a place for drills, um, particularly with triathletes who, who might not come from a running background and or young. I do a lot on running technique with sort of like young elite triathletes who are more often than not from swimming background. Um, so there's definitely a place for it. Um, as much as you know, for sort of injury avoidance, perhaps, and and just slowly building up the um the elasticity and the resistance of the, of the lower leg, Mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of the drills, basically what you're doing with drills is sort of very low level plyometrics, um, as, and, and core work as as Simon mentioned. Um, I do think there's a a place for it and, and they do help with, or they can help with building up or improving your run efficiency. Um, which we, we, you know, we've just mentioned is, is key, but, your 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 run efficiency is is basically improved by by running Aha. Uh, more of that more of that long easy stuff that that Mark was talking well, about yeah i mean you, as you age you, you up to a point your your efficiency improves if if you're running consistently um you know and i think it's it's one of the um uh, I think the studies in the African runners have shown that it's, it's their economy, their efficiency of movement, mm. which is one of their main advantages, um, which, you know, it's related to a lot of things. Um, technique certainly is one of them. Um, so, yes, the drills, drills play a part, but consistent running is, is by far more, more important.
0: Right, Mark, you look like you've calmed down a bit. So why don't you tell us about your thoughts on forefoot running?
2: Okay, I was just going to say, because the heel striking and forefoot running thing is a separate issue. But just on this thing on, on run efficiency, I think everything has a place. So there's a difference between an 800-meter runner and someone running in an Ironman event. So we're talking about the drills and stuff like that and running technique. Most people running in Ironman just want the most economical shuffle shuffle they can manage. You know, if they are running, then they just want an economical shuffle. You don't see the average age grouper in an Ironman running with high knees and a big heel flick at the back and bouncing on the ball of the foot. It doesn't happen. So what's the most economical way for you to run at a slow pace and just keep running? And that's what's relevant in Ironman. And that's where there's a disassociation then with all that kind of drills and the high knees and the heel flick and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't work in that context. For someone who's running shorter distances, up to 5Ks and stuff, and 800s and 1500s, and you can see how it has a place there. But that's my view on that for a start. So, you know, how it works in an Ironman, for me, it probably doesn't at all. Uh, uh, heel striking uh, is a different thing. Can I butt in there? No, no. If you're <laughs> going to agree with me, you can butt in. If you're not going to agree with me, you can't. Um, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to
1: agree about the the efficient shuffle. Yeah. Um, but I think you know maybe Simon will agree with you here. One of the things that you want in an Man run is, however, you know, if you're shuffling or whatever, is that you don't want to be bent double at the waist. Yeah. Uh, you know, sticking yeah. your ass out behind you. You want to be upright.
2: Yeah, but that—that that for me, that would be part of the efficient shuffle, trying to yeah. run tall and relaxed and so yeah. on. But there's other aspects, like I said, the high knee and the, the heel flick and yeah, all that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. There are some basics you should be trying to learn. Definitely. I'm gonna jump.
1: Think, I'm gonna jump. Think, oh. Sorry, sorry. I think drills in terms of working on your technique, if you like, can help. Can help with that, even in Man.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you've got to remember what you be able, you've you've got to remember certain basic skills when you get tired haven't you which is why you do this stuff over and over again running easy i mean the, the thing about being bent double is probably for me it's got nothing to do with running technique and more to do with posture and being able to move correctly and efficiently so moving like human beings are supposed to move and not shuffling like old men which is what most people look like in the last <laughs> in in the last 5 That's miles
2: okay. and
0: so that I mean that's a totally different subject altogether about the refusal of most people to do any strength and conditioning work because they don't think it has any place. And I, and I you know, I challenge them to come and stand next to any with any of us at the end of an Ironman race, and we'll point out at least fifty percent of the field who need to do some. Yeah,
1: um, but I think. Sorry, I, I, I think that that the, there's a continuum between, let's say, run drills mm-hmm. and and strength and conditioning. I think they're I think yeah. they're on the same continuum. So. You know done right drills are a form of, of, of conditioning yes
0: no I, I agree and and you, you have to you know everybody gets tired don't they from from the guy who's going to come across the finish line he he, he or she has legs hurting in the last 10 miles like the rest of us do but they slow down the least part of that is due to the hours and hours and hours and years of conditioning they've done at that, that learning to run at an easy pace, because what feels easy going, going back to something you said earlier, Mark, what what feels easy when you're out training is, is your race pace, isn't it? On race day in, in a long distance event, um, And I mean, let's not, we talk a lot about Ironman because that's the thing that that we've done most of. We coach athletes mostly too, but even a standard distance triathlon is an extreme endurance event. It's over two hours, three hours hours for most people. Um, So that is an extreme endurance event. You know, when when you're actually physiologically, the definition of endurance is really an event that takes longer than six minutes. So, Mm. you know, we're right at the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, let's let's just talk about this thing because there seems to be a lot of stuff. In the same way that people say I need a nutritionist to help me sort out the basics of eating correctly, we see a lot that says I need a running coach to help me change my running technique so I can go from heel strike to forefoot, or I need mid strike, or this that, or that, the other. Uh, personally, I think there's so much overemphasis on the way you foot strike rather than just finding an efficient foot landing regardless of how that is and if you again if you go and watch an elite marathon you'll see some elite marathoners there with heel strikes and you'll see some with midfoot strikes and you'll see some with forefoot strikes and these are guys that are running you know sub 220 and and they're at the front of the field in the world
2: Mm.
0: so clearly it doesn't make that much difference
2: no no it doesn't and that's the thing there's no evidence to suggest that forefoot striking is better than heel striking at all you know there's pretty much an even split isn't there You know, but that's, uh, that's, I think a lot of that's down to marketing as well. So again, owning a running shop, this is the kind of stuff that we have to go through with the manufacturers that there was a trend. When was it about eight years ago? And it pretty much coincided with, was it McDougall who wrote Born to Run? I think, and, uh, and, of course, and, and anybody who's readborn to run is is clearly an expert biomechanist after that, and then um, and would come in and just preach on why, because they've red-born to run, that four foot running is the way to go to reduce injuries and all this kind of stuff. It's also for a lot of people the way to go if they wanted to get calf problems and Achilles problems as well, and, and various other things. And the market followed, didn't it? So all the running manufacturers went to four mil drop, and now they've all drifted back again to normal drops. So a lot of them have drifted back to normal drops, and the whole four foot running thing. Has completely disappeared. So it was just a, a fad at that time. So from, from, a, from a shop and a shoe perspective, I would say the whole thing's whole thing's disappeared. But obviously it still leave, leaves that legacy behind. And um and and going back to what we've already said here, which really is when you run, you just run tall, run relaxed, and your body will find its most efficient way to run. And if that's heel striking then it's heel striking. If it's four foot landing it's four foot landing. But however you land and transfer that energy and propel yourself forward, what's the most natural way for you is the most natural way. And I also think it shifts with age. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, and I'm taking myself as an example here, landing on, I would say landing on your forefoot, the whole point of landing on your forefoot was to use the natural elasticity in tendons. So if I land on my forefoot and I've got a low drop shoe, like a zero drop shoe, so I'm running in a Newton or something like that, or a four mil drop shoe, The idea was you would land on your forefoot and your heel would still be off the ground and then your heel would drop. And as your heel dropped, it stretched your Achilles and then you had a recoil which propelled you forward, much like a plyometric manner. Um, as I've got older, I used to run on my forefoot all the time in very low drop shoes, running in Walsh's all the time in fell races and stuff like that and trail races, very low drop shoes, always a forefoot runner. As I've got older, the elasticity in my tendons seems to have disappeared. So if I land on my forefoot, I now feel very flat, whereas I used to bounce when I was younger. So I now run on my heels instead and I heel strike and I can transfer the energy much better. So my running style has changed and I put that down to age. So um, so I don't think you're set with your running style from, you know, from your 20s through to your 60s. I think things change and
0: yeah. Steve, you got anything to say on that?
2: Yeah, well I was gonna sort of
1: say I think even before the the, the I mean I bought in I was I was quite interested in into all this four foot and barefoot running for a while. Well just there was something in it, I think, but before it was do you remember Nick Romanoff? I was gonna
0: say you, you and I you and I were probably at the same presentation for BTF when Nick Romanoff yeah, came along.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and, yeah. Yeah. Um and uh, to be honest, I think again the sort of the the, the drills and stuff that, that Nick did, it was it, it was um, a way of describing good running, really, rather than, <laughs> yeah. rather than anything revolutionary. And it did move, it, but it did move people or emphasise moving towards the sort of forefoot. Uh, and I know it did lead to sort of, like Mark said, of some people having foot and, and Achilles problems. Um, I, I would, you know, my, my thing with running is is not exactly where you on your foot you land, heel, mid or fore, but where... The foot lands in relation to your center of gravity
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know i think that's the issue that um i think po- hopefully we'd all agree that you don't want it sort of uh, in front of your center of gravity because there's an obvious breaking effect um so i you know i i, I would suggest that it's it's not on which part of your foot you land it's where your foot lands in relation to center of gravity that's most important mm-hmm. um, and and that that said i think it is harder to land it, it, if you if your foot landing in the right place more people are going to be flat or or, or mid or four foot than heel um but not all you know not mm. not all so it, it is and i'd agree with mark as well that it's i've certainly found changing with age mm. yeah.
2: um
0: yeah and that's that's i'm sure that's down to you talk about loss of elasticity mark i think it's just down to the way we move we 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 just don't move as freely as we get older unless we do more to counteract that, which um, I talked to Shane Benzie and his thing was, look, I'm a running coach, but I'm not really a running coach. I'm helping people to move better because if you do, if you move better, and again, Kelly Sturette talked about the same thing, is you engage in movement practice every day, doing some squatting, doing some stuff where you're getting up and down off the floor because most humans, even triathletes will spend the majority of the day sitting down walking somewhere or lying down. They don't do any other movement, lateral or down to the ground up or or anything else. So move better, you probably find that you run better. And then, but just, but think about running and running regularly and enjoying the running and embracing the process of running, which is, you know, we're coming back to the simple, basic things here, aren't we? On everything um, is actually the key. And if you spend too long worrying about your your foot strike, you're going to spend not as much time actually doing the running.
2: Yeah. I got a couple of things want to chip in on this. So one is um, just on the how shoes have changed as well. And again, knowing this again from selling shoes for 12 years, but um, I think the old style shoes, um, when you were when you were uh, quite fresh and you were running well, so if you went out for a 30 minute run and you felt good, I think most people were generally midfoot striking anyway, and the shoes feel okay. And then when they were tired, so you entered an Ironman or something like that or a marathon, in the last six miles you shot to pieces. And when you started landing heavy on the heels, the shoes felt awful. Mm. So if it feels awful when you land on your heels, people will learn to run run on the forefoot. And there was, you know, they wanted to learn how to run on the forefoot better. Mm -hmm. And then Hoka really started it where they looked at it and thought, well, if it just feels awful running on your heels, let's just create a shoe that doesn't feel awful running on your heels. Mm -hmm. And then you don't need to bother running on your forefoot. So we'll design a shoe which makes heel striking feel good. We'll put a rocker in it and cut away the heel and shape the heel and that's what they did so that's why you know th- those shoes became popular and then a lot of the manufacturers have copied them now so if you land on your heel the shoe actually feels really nice rolling from heel to toe and they never did that in the past you know mm-hmm. 6 7 years ago that wasn't the case so you felt much better in the old style running shoes when you were running upon your forefoot mm-hmm. so that changing shoe tech i think now and i mean even with the nike alpha flies the same that they reckon a lot of the benefits it's more beneficial for heel strikers than it is for forefoot runners because it's storing the energy from the heel to toe. So so the shoes are designed a little bit that way. Um, so that, that's a kind of interesting thing with, it, with the shoe changes. But the other thing you're talking about, if you just do more, better movement. Um, I suppose like, you know, any skill, and running is a skill, isn't it? Any skill is really easy to do when you do it slowly. So I, I tried to learn how to play the guitar, didn't do very well, I can put my fingers on the right places if I do it slowly. If I have to do it quick, I'm knackered. And it's the same when you play the piano or anything else. <laughs> when you add speed elements in there, it becomes a bit more complex and your fingers are all over the place. Okay. So with running, if you go right back to kind of what one thing Lidyard always did with all his athletes, go out and just do loads of long, easy stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the end of every long, easy run, do some acceleration strides.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So we just wind up strides, acceleration strides, whatever you want to call them. And I think most people, because if they're doing a lot of that steady stuff, they're never kind of neurologically challenging themselves. Mm. If they just do a wind up stride, which is just basically start slow and over 50 meter distance, get faster and faster and faster and faster until you're at peak speed, you, you, their arms and legs are all over the place because they can't coordinate themselves. They can't move the legs and their arms in a coordinated manner. So it's no wonder in a race that they struggle so much with economy because
0: Well that's yeah, that to me that's that's where to me that's where the running economy comes in. If you can absolutely. learn to run run efficiently when you're fast, it, it translates that you're going to be so much more efficient at slower speeds.
2: But do all that slow stuff, but just play around a little bit as well and make sure you do a little bit of fartlek. It doesn't have to be desperately structured, but do a bit of fartlek or some acceleration strides where you actually try to run uh you know at, at what is your kind of peak sprint speed almost while staying relaxed and holding good form and, and most people really struggle with that because yes. as soon as you start to increase the speed of the skill mm.
1: they
2: can't do it and they're all over the place and that to me is a drill yeah uh, we agree on that then don't we yep right. I, well I agree
0: I, I agree with you about that one as well so um, I think that, that would be a good place to finish wouldn't it where we're all in a agreement <laughs> <laughs> listen boys uh we've got a list as still as long as half of steve's arm that we haven't covered yet so uh it's been lovely to catch up with you mark i know you've got uh, other, a couple of other things to do this afternoon and it's we've reached the witching hour when you need to leave so i uh, appreciate you chaps coming on again there was a lot of excitement when i told uh, the facebook groups that the, the grumpy old coaches were back in the seats so um hopefully we can do it again soon maybe we can have a christmas special
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's only
0: three months away, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, and this time yeah. I'll send you. This time I'll send you the the wine beforehand, so we can actually do the video while we're drinking the wine.
1: Uh, I, I, one. I think I think I'm going to vote for whiskey this year. <laughs> Are Unless you I'm now? <laughs> You're pushing my <laughs> generosity a little bit there.
2: What, what about um? What about a Halloween special? Most terrifying triathlon myths.
0: Oh, the most Ooh. terrifying triathlon myths. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let, let's be thinking on that one for now, chaps. Thank you very much for being here. Appreciate this. Um, it's, it's good to see you as always. Well, good to see you, Mark. Good to see your name on the not uh, non-video screen, Steve. I, th- I think Mark and I are going to chip in for an upgraded um, subscription for you.
2: Yeah. Hashtag get Steve some Wi-Fi.
0: Get Steve some Wi Fi. We'll have a campaign to get new cabling put into his locality.
1: They are are doing it. We've been up, I'm in the middle of nowhere. They uh they are putting um what's it called? Airband, is it? Something like that. A hairband. Uh, Mark doesn't doesn't need a hairband.
2: Hairband. (laughs) (laughs) You
0: you you two can send me a hairband. We'll get you we'll get you Wi Fi and we'll get you, Mark, we'll get you a um a pumpkin. Me. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks very much again for being here. It's always a pleasure to see you and uh, chat with you. You're always good, value for uh, value for your time. So, um, catch you again soon. See you
2: later.
0: Thank you, as always, to Steve and Mark for joining me again on the show. There are links to everything we discussed in today's episode in the show notes below. I really appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human podcast. If you'd like to join the conversation today just subscribe for free on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode and join our High Performance Human podcast Facebook page. Okay that's all for this week I'll be back in seven days time with another great guest. Remember being a high performance human is a journey so stay healthy stay focused and keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday.